This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we're in downtown Denver. We're with Megan Marston and Nancy Tremar. They are the co-founders and owners of Vale Intimates. Guys, yeah. thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. You know, it's, this is an inaugural uh, where I have two guests at one time, and I think you guys are going to be fascinated by what these two have embarked on. So if you would, tell us a little bit about your business and who you serve. Vail Intimates, we're an apparel technology company. We have designed and patented revolutionary technology that is going to change women's apparel. And Megan and I were shopping, trying to find a supportive bra that didn't use an underwire for support, and we were dumbfounded when we couldn't find it existing in the market already. So it motivated us to search out the possibilities, and here we are today. You know, we talked a little bit before the show, and so we were motivated. And I'm thinking of the quantity of times that you've been shopping <laughs> for undergarments, browser. And this one was the tipping point. Tell me a little bit about when you guys had been disappointed, and you left wherever you were, and the conversation you guys had going on that spurred you to action. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing how many times you can experience something and it not motivate you, but for some reason this was the tipping point. For us, I think we were at a, a really amazing boutique located in Cherry Creek in Denver that's known for the most beautiful high-end apparel and intimates, and we both were, it was their sidewalk sale, so we are buying really nice things at a discount. But even then, we decided, we went to Starbucks, we're talking about it, and, and this is the best fitting piece of apparel place you could buy this piece of apparel in Colorado. We're sitting and looking at each other. How can we spend that much money and still be this dissatisfied? Maybe it just means that we need to look into the market and how our bras are made. Is there a way to do it better? Why does it have to be this way? And just start investigating. And that's really what it was. There wasn't one particular thing that really pushed us over the edge besides maybe being together and both feeling the same way. And then having the conversation with other women, it was a continued echo of mentality that I guess this is just as good as it's going to get. And accepting this piece of apparel that you have to wear every day is just not going to be comfortable. And it is what it is. That wasn't good enough for us. You know, I think about in the morning, getting ready to go do whatever you're going to do. And you go, I got to put that device on again. You already have some degree of rancor with that garment. And you guys were explaining kind of the history, the background from here. This is old technology as it exists today. The technology you're trying to interrupt. Whale bones, corsets, and the wire was brought on board when? It was patented in the 30s. The only innovation has been they've taken it to a plastic as opposed to the wire. So now when it pokes you, it doesn't poke you quite as stabbing as it used to. Well, isn't that nice? Yeah, it's very, very <laughs> That's exactly right. There's hope. You know, so I'm thinking about the genesis of you guys, and, and so you've left the shopping, you've gone mm-hmm. to Starbucks. So you guys have history in business. Both of you guys have been entrepreneurs. What's some of your background? This is Megan. So my background, I worked in management consulting for a number of years, and predominantly in healthcare and finance. I started my first business when I was 26 in real estate, flipping houses and getting into the real estate market. From there, I just was bit by the entrepreneurial bug and started multiple companies in various industries, nothing, no two alike, and looking at everything as a problem-solving challenge and really 
really enjoying being a servant leader and building out teams and also just creating a really great customer service experience for some of my businesses. And this business really became part of my heart when we started down the path and really could see the consumer's drive and need for it. Seeing women light up when you talk about changing something they hate so much really became a driving force for me as I continued to move forward with Vail. And Nancy and I have known each other for quite some time both working as a client relationship and then also as business partners and being employed by a corporation together and working alongside each other and then ultimately friends. I think about coming out and you've got this thought. Then you start doing some research. And maybe what would be helpful is to describe, if you can, the underlying process that you've patented. What's this all about? Part of our process that we've patented, essentially, so... What happens today when a bra is made, is a bra cup is made specifically, are two pieces of foam are fused together. And then from there, a channel is put on, and this underwire is slipped into that channel to create the support structure. So regardless of size, underwires really change in support by a few centimeters, and that's about it. So what we decided to do was create 3D print, create the support system, with various shapes and thicknesses throughout, and then integrate that into the cup. So what that means is pressing that piece of support structure between two pieces of foam that then form the cup. What we found is by having support through the whole cup, it changed the stress and strain that a woman experienced and felt on her body. And that's when we knew we had something. So it's the process and the design. You showed me an example of a cup. It looks like a piece of foam shaped. Because you can't tell. You hold it up to a light, and for lack of a better term, it looks like a rather large spiderweb between the two foam pieces. We were talking about, in construction, if you're an A cup or a D cup, basically the support system really doesn't change. You know, we said that's like having a two-ton crane and a four-ton crane built the same way. Then you go, well, that's kind of stupid, frankly. And so for you guys, you have a particular approach to the marketplace. You're not trying to come out with your own brand, per se. So what's your approach to the marketplace? Our approach to the marketplace really is to change the marketplace. So our strategy is to license our technology. We have patents that we've received and patents that are pending that create an aggregate IP company. And ultimately, our hopes are to work with existing brands, not only in the traditional foundation arena, but also activewear, swimwear, and eveningwear to change the support structure for women. Ideally, we'd be working with large brands like Spanx and Chantal, Victoria's Secret, who already have a large share of the market. So our goal really isn't to build this big brand for ourselves, but truly change the underlying process and strategy of how women are supported in their apparel. IP, intellectual property company. So you license your technology and they would be bringing it on board with what they're doing. Correct. Then the question for folks thinking about process. So you have all this testing phase and design phase and so on. And then at some point you arrive at a design. What did you guys do to make sure that your design was, you don't know where I'm going with this question, but you're, you're starting to laugh. You don't know where, no, we're, where, yes, yeah. you know where we've been. <laughs> so what I'm thinking of is how did you, what steps did you take to protect the effort and intellect that went into your process? I think part of what we worked on and thought through and what we were really mindful of is in our initial investigation phases, being somewhat quiet about what we were doing until we had a grasp of what was happening. 
and then reaching out to a law firm basically and starting to have renderings and drop what we were thinking. And then iteration after iteration, I think the reason Nancy and I were laughing is because part of our process was a bit of like first grade artwork. So we had printed, like you said, kind of that spider web out, Mm -hmm. and we were trying to figure out how to press it in the cup successfully. It was so much so to the point we were at our manufacturer in LA, we were had scissors and we were cutting out different shapes. It was completely non-scientific. It was just a trial and error prototype. We grew up into being scientific, utilizing engineering software that's used similarly in aerospace and automotive today. But our initial prototyping was a really first-grade artwork where we had scissors in this large manufacturing plant that presses bras, cutting out different shapes in our spiderweb 3D printed form. So that was kind of our initial learnings, if you will, and how we got to prototype. Then we kind of reversed into putting what we thought would work into engineering simulation and happily found that what we had come up with just our minds and our gut validated in engineering simulation. Well, you guys are end users. And so you look at that and you go, you know, at some point, you know, you go, I've kind of been around this thing for a while. Then you looked at the ones you had and deconstructed the ones that you had already had. And so not surprising, you had an already proper, intimate relationship with the existing technology. Correct. You know, and I think about, so you've got this process. Did you have a 3D printer at your house or were you outsourcing 3D printing? We cold called 3D printing companies. We started here in Denver. We had no idea. First gentleman I got on the phone, Justin. We still work with him directly today. I had a conversation with him about would they be able to help us? Could they print garments? And he said, we should probably have a meeting. I've got to warn you, my entire engineering staff are men. So it's a little bit foreign to them. But if you would come down with your business partner, we would like to talk further and see if we can help you. And that meeting was really interesting. They did not really understand the concept until we showed them a bra. Which, yes, that bra, I left the meeting, came back, and presented it to them. <laughs> yes, that happened. <laughs> we um, need a visual aid. Yeah, yeah, she got them one. They had no idea what we were talking about. And truly, that made a difference in the conversation. But in hindsight, we laugh about it a lot. In that meeting, it was just, it had to be in order for them to understand what we were talking about. We came back, we talked through it, and they said, give us a little bit of time, a few weeks, and let us try and figure this out. We might be in touch with some questions. Mm -hmm. They came back to us with what we asked them for, and we adjusted some of the thicknesses, we adjusted the shape a little bit, but it was our first prototype. Mm -hmm. We took that to our patent manufacturer, and then, like Megan said, it was art class with scissors on the manufacturing floor making design changes based on our intuition. I think about aerospace and say, said design a nose cone for a space shuttle. They'd be all over a nose cone on a space shuttle. Yep. And you think, you know, other than size, it's not really much different. You know, it's a conical event. And so for you guys, I'm thinking about the various designs. There's the full coverage and there's the part coverage. And anyways, I don't, yeah. <laughs> yes, all of those. All, you know, all, all the choices. So will the support system that you guys designed, will it fit the various different style or is it going to be pretty much specific? Nope, it'll fit varying styles. So our goal is to work with brands and their flagship shapes and styles that they like for their line that already exists and integrate that support system into their existing styles and patterns. And so really it's allowing for variance depending on the shape and style. So not changing the aesthetic of a brand, but really integrating that support structure into the existing aesthetic. 
Well, you said that ever so much better than I asked the question. <laughs> the design aesthetic, uh, not the word I was reaching for. So you guys have had multiple discussions with manufacturers, as I understand it. What are the things that you're typically hearing from the manufacturers? They're dumbstruck. <laughs> yes, I, yes, correct. <laughs> they are shocked that we have been able to get this far on our own and are very interested in where we're going. And hopefully one of those in the next few months will be an exclusive deal. But ideally, we would like this to be available to all women. And how we met and how you guys got on the podcast is a previous guest that had breast cancer and was talking about the challenges in the asymmetry issues and others with support garments. So you guys are going to be involved in that world too, Marshall. Correct. Yeah, our heart really lies with a woman who's experienced septum reconstruction or augmentation and from experience have understood that it's a real challenge to find something that works. Most women who've experienced a surgery can't wear underwires at all. So they're seeking something beautiful after an emotional experience and aren't finding it. And so part of our third horizon strategy is really to create customized prosthetic out of a really lightweight product that we are working on currently with a few higher institutions and also the integration of sensor technology into that. So there are amazing higher ed institutions that are working on sensor technology, not only for reactive care, but proactive care, predominantly in breast cancer. So infrared technology that would be integrated into your apparel that you didn't even know was there that would help track and understand if there is growth or cell production that would not be healthy cells, as well as heart disease tracking. So there is a wonderful organization out of MIT that's doing uh, heart disease tracking, which is the number one killer actually for women. Yeah, you, the experience of heart attack in women is entirely, not entirely, but much, much different than men. Correct. And so really working to build innovation in that too, not only have application for comfort and aesthetic, but have a true application around things that are close to our hearts and that we care about and the medical community and being really proactive to that and building line that works for women who've experienced those surgeries that satisfies their need and still makes them feel beautiful after everything they've gone through emotionally. So that's really our hearts in that. Wasn't there a discussion about some of the professional emergency folks that you guys had mentioned that you were interacting with fire departments and so on? Yeah, so there's already technology that is monitoring health information for firefighters, EMT, and military applications. The biggest challenge is those applications typically are for the male community, so they're integrated into something that would be a base layer. The problem with base layers and sensors is that there's a bra on the way for women. Mm -hmm. And so if those sensors aren't integrated into the apparel that's closest to them, the sensor technology doesn't work. So if a female firefighter is wearing a sports bra with the sensor technology in her base layer, it's not going to read correctly because it's, there's a piece of apparel between her and that technology. And so our hope is to work with those communities to really deliver something special for the, the women who serve us in that way. But it would be very exciting to work with that community. Well, you guys had a, a recent event that has to do with FIT, Fashion Institute Technology, correct? Right of technology. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with them and you guys. I have to like give Nancy kudos because part of the reason we've been so successful is because a lack of fear in contacting people we have no connection to, but realizing that we have a value proposition that's very interesting. And so Nancy called FIT almost a year ago and said to them, 
Hi, I'm Nancy from Valence, and that's, you've probably never heard of me, but I'd really like to talk to you, and we'd like to talk about a research partnership. And we got 15 minutes of time, so we flew out to New York for 15 minutes of time to meet with FIT. This amazing woman, who now we're very close with and adore, was going to give us 15 minutes of her time. Next thing we know, an hour and 15 minutes later, we've gotten their attention. FIT is very interested in innovation. They're very focused on growing in that space. There is a lot of innovation to occur in apparel still. They are leading the way. And so through a number of months to see how we could build a relationship and research and development came to the conclusion that we could. Currently are working with FIT and some professors to not only assess the fit and comfort of our piece of apparel and how it would be integrated easily to manufacturing processes, but comfort study. So having multiple people try our piece of apparel, give feedback, and make adjustments. From that, we'll be working with, we'll have a tech pack essentially to go out into the marketplace and work with existing brands to say, this is what we found from our study from 100 people wearing our product. This is the feedback they gave. This is how we changed it. And then we did the comfort study, and we're just at the beginning of that. So it's been a really fun process, truly not knowing or ever creating a partnership with higher ed. It was our first time, both of us, in an entrepreneurial setting to do that. And it's been really lovely. They've been very good to us, and we're very excited to be partnering with them. So I need to know, you know, if you knew you had 15 minutes, what were you going to lead with? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we would thought that far ahead, but maybe. <laughs> I think we felt that if we could get in the door, we'd have more than 15 minutes because we knew the product that we were presenting to them and what we were asking them to do will revolutionize women's apparel in four categories that has had no innovation in decades. And that's still amazing, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. FIT is really, they're the Harvard of fashion where some of the other big names are more the couture and the, if you will, the editorial designing. But FIT is really on the forefront of what's happening in fashion. And they were very attentive to our conversation. And they have actually given us some of our best referrals for networking. One of our advisors is directly from a referral that this woman gave us. And she's been invaluable to us. Yeah, very thankful. You know, I think about now, when you went in, did she have the same resonance with the underwire problem that you guys brought up? Of course. Immediately. (laughs) And the funny thing is, is she started in school in intimate apparel and foundations and realized how hard it is. And she changed the direction of her major. So she understands full-heartedly what we're trying to do and how this will affect women's apparel. Part of that is because, oddly, the cup manufacturer and the underwire manufacturer aren't the same people. So the underwire doesn't necessarily always match the cup. Designs have to be adjusted according to the manufacturing availability to products. And so it was just very interesting. It's been a steep learning curve, but we've learned a lot. And Joanne has been lovely to help us get there. You know, it's a I'm, blessing. I'm thinking of you guys. So you're on the plane to New York, right? This is a pretty big deal. And before you guys go into the meeting, what did you guys say to each other before you went in? Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, for Nancy and I, thankfully, so part of our business background and where we worked together was in business development. So where we feel most comfortable is in a sales pitch business setting. Okay. And so for us, that was the moment to seize the moment and to do what we needed to do. I feel like a lot of our career prepared us for moments like those Mm -hmm. where you're making an ask or beginning to build relationship. And those aren't areas where we have challenge. That's where we thrive. And so for us, it was getting the meeting. Once we had the meeting, we felt pretty confident we would 
move from there, and then it's step by step from there. You know, I think about getting out of comfort zones. And so for you guys, was there a point where you guys really got out of your comfort zone to pursue this idea? Like every day? <laughs> we're still outside. Let us know when we can come back to the I'd probably zone. say as we're talking engineering. So my background sure. and Nancy's background is not engineering. To validate our product, we felt it necessary to have scientific validation to create um, an avatar, essentially, in ANSYS, which is a, a tool, a software tool that's used in, in aerospace. I mean, Audi and Lockheed all are using this type of program. Working with an engineer and understanding the, the language of an engineer into layman's. We knew what pain meant. We just didn't know it was called stress and strain. We knew what movement looked like because of personal experience, not because of Athena, our avatar, told us. But the best part was is that all of our intuition, all of our gods, and all of our wisdom from personal experience was translated into that avatar and then was validated. It was a really beautiful thing, but talking on the phone with and interviewing engineers to talk about female anatomy movement and integrating an apparel piece into it, that was outside of my comfort zone, especially knowing that there's mathematic calculations of movement, stress and strain, all of the things that engineers' terminology they speak very regularly and easily was not any scope of my business knowledge or acumen at all. The biggest piece of stepping outside would be that. You know, in when we were chatting before the episode, that's way in your past because we were talking at length about many different things, and it really is not a challenge for you guys to talk out now. But I think about the engineer speak that goes on, you know, they don't speak intimate either. And, you know, if you said, I need to take and hold a specific load that's in a cylindrical event, they'd be all over that with no problem and no hesitancy. Right, correct. And that was exactly kind of what we experienced. And But interviewing the engineers to get to that point was <laughs> maybe outside of our comfort level a little bit. <laughs> what did your families think of this surprise? My grandmother actually had her own course of business in a high-rise office downtown. So it's interesting that I'm getting into this industry. There was no true direction, but my family loves it, and they are encouraging and hope that we succeed because they want to know when they can have their own bras with Valentin's technology. Are you guys driving your technology now? Are we driving our technology now? No. We are not currently driving our technology. <laughs> We're having our pieces of apparel made in the next few weeks, but we have worn them before. Okay. So first off, you're going like, okay, this is what I thought, or it's not what I thought. And so what was the process as you take and test drive your new equipment? Mm -hmm. What did you do as an after action or a thought process to, this is what I noticed, this is what it's missing? What did you guys do? What was that like? So I think a lot of our initial testing for us, test driving our product, was an activewear setting. So not traditional foundations, but an activewear. And seeing could it do what we thought it could do in those type of settings. And where we experienced failure and what our hopes were is that we could wash and dry our, our product. Mm -hmm. So currently in the market, almost every garment, specifically traditional foundations, can't be washed and dried. It's, it's hand washed or it's washed and air dried. And we really wanted to be able to wash and dry our product. That was a big piece for us. And so it took us mapping out and working with chemical engineers on the raw material availability that could withstand multiple heat cycles. That was part of what we made changes for. 
I think that our intuition and gut on the actual support system itself lended to be correct pretty much out of the gate. There were nominal changes that occurred over the course of time that were particularly driven through the scientific software, but our heart really led to wanting to wash and dry, and that was probably where our biggest overcoming of challenge was occurring. I think also there was a bit of us that wanted to have used as eco-friendly of products as possible, so trying to navigate what was available in the marketplace for products, for raw materials that would be sourced and sustainable. If folks didn't know any better in hearing about this, this really sounds like engineering, and other than the fact that it's intimate, you know, product design, market test market, you know, testing it, see if stress failures and the whole bit, and that's exactly what you guys are doing. That's correct. And the amazing thing in the market, although activewear companies do have engineers on their teams because they're looking at different gates, different levels of stress a woman may experience depending on how fast she's running or if she's jumping, etc. The foundation industry doesn't have engineers on staff. So this piece of apparel, which is an engineering feat, basically like a suspension bridge, there are no engineers to be found in those companies. It is very aesthetically focused with a historical mapping and pattern making and fit of traditional intimates. So we're here to say this is an engineering feat and there needs to be some thought around it in that way. Well, that's where the wire came from. Howard Hughes, on an, he was an engineer. Aeronautics. And you kind of go, did they all die after Howard? And well, I don't know. But you think about that and it just strikes you as incongruous. Yeah, and I think we're in a time now more than ever where we want it all, right? So I think previously it was kind of like you had to pick either comfort or support. We're bridging the gap between those two where you can have something really comfortable that's still aesthetically very beautiful and you don't have to choose between the two and that the innovation is thoughtful based on the women who wear it instead of kind of a traditional mentality. What's coming up in the near future for you guys? What's the next benchmark or hurdle for you guys? Yeah, so we are in the midst of our partnership with FIT and are working to build that tech pack and get through our comfort study. From there, we would be licensing our product to apparel brands, so an activewear foundations, uh, swimwear, and evening wear. We have someone that we're working with that has lots of experience in licensing product in the fashion space, and so we'll begin the dialogue and really selecting our first partner that really makes sense, that their brand aligns with our vision that their hope is for innovation, for comfort for women without the, the loss of aesthetic beauty. And um, so it'll be really a selection process of who the first partner will be and what that looks like. Nothing to it. <laughs> Easy peasy. Easy peasy, just another no problem. Yeah. We've kind of gone through the process of what's going on with you guys. For the folks that are listening and go, I, I'm interested, I need to talk to you, or I need to find more about it. How do they find you guys? They can find us on veilintimates.com, V-E-I-L, intimates.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, Instagram at veilintimates.com. So that's good. So they can reach out, which yep. is important. Well, not, now my favorite part is I get to quiz you to death like I haven't already. But, you know, some other stuff. For you guys, when you're going through this process, is there a book, influential book of some kind that's altered your perception about how you run your business? Why would that be? It's, uh... For me, a friend of ours, an advisor of ours, recommended The Lean Startup by Eric Rice, and I thought it was very interesting because he points out that you 
shouldn't get caught up on having the perfect prototype or product to get to market, which in my mind, starting this venture, I had to have it perfect. It had to be washer and dryer friendly. It had to do everything in the first go round. That really made me think about it. He said, what you need to think about is constantly refining your product based on your consumer feedback on a build, measure, learn information loop. Most importantly, be flexible and be able to pivot quickly, unlike a traditional company. If you can take that consumer feedback and turn it into revenue generators, that's potentially the difference between being in business and growing your business. That book alone for me was like, huh, okay, I need to rethink where I'm going and what my strategy is, and it's been very helpful. For me, there's two books that I really like that have been influential lately. Angela Duckworth's Grit. So I really enjoy her approach that it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have be a genius or have intellect to be valuable. It's your passion and perseverance that will land you to success. And I wholeheartedly believe that. So I really enjoy books that talk about habit and people who've achieved success and what they're doing that's differentiator. It helped grow my perseverance for sure. My passion was always there, but looking at every obstacle as an opportunity and a way to grow and be better and resolve our product issues was a large part of that. And then Mark Batterson's book, Chase the Lion. So Mark Batterson wrote the book, Chase the Lion. It's a phenomenal book. And I think the tag of the book is, if your dream doesn't scare you, it's too small. And so as someone who's working to change an entire industry, that's billions and billions of dollars. That's very traditional. That has a lot of brilliant minds in it. It's this book told me that it's enough, you know, help me understand if it's not scaring me enough, I'm not shooting far enough into the sky. And so to stop fearing failure of success and just go for it, because if you don't go for it, you've already failed. So really just focusing on those two have been uh, great books and I highly recommend them. You know, it's funny, uh, perfect gets in the way of good enough. Yep. It really does. Yep. And, you know, part of the podcast ethos, if there is one, is, you know, I like the notion that you guys are fearless and the role model side is just really cool. So, with that being said, what failure or at the time apparent failure has served you or your company best or set you up for future achievement? The aspiration of a 3D printed Baraka. It didn't deter us that that couldn't be done at this point in 3D printing. What it did is it challenged us. And from that, we decided we wanted to find a way to make a comfortable, beautiful, supportive bra that didn't use a lot of padding, underwire, or compression for that support system in garments women wear daily. From that challenge came the Bell Intimates 3D printed cup insert pattern design that will change foundations, activewear, swimwear, and evening wear forever. There's some inspiration for folks out there that said that you can't. said, well, yes, you can. So if you guys could put an ad on page one of the local paper sharing your company message or advice, what would it say and why? Yeah, so that was a tough question. I know I was like prepping for that, but I do feel like you don't have to choose. I feel like so much in life you do have to make choices. You have so much time for things. But in product, you don't really have to choose. And I think up until this point, we've been forced to choose as women in this piece of apparel. You have to wear one. And so it's either going to be really unfortunately looking and comfortable, or it's going to be really beautiful and painful. So the message to me and from me to women is you don't have to choose. You can have it all. And in this piece of apparel, you can have it all. And that's what we're shooting for. That's what we're, our aspirations are for and what we will achieve. 
You know, I think about discrimination, right? Guys don't wear bras, as far as I know. <laughs> at least not many. Men's ears. Seinfeld <laughs> You know, and I think about that, and you go, how much sooner would this problem have been addressed if everybody had to wear them and everybody went through the same discomfort? I'm fairly confident it would have been resolved really quickly. <laughs> you know, because you know, the thing that you said, you know, and I, and I don't know if we talked about it already, but when you go to a cocktail party and you talk to women about this, it resonates and it's a flashpoint for the discomfort. And I, I, I don't know what it is, which my wife would say is a typical state, but had no idea, none. So that's really cool to bring a solution to the table. All right, for this one, best allocation, either time or initiative, that's helped your company most. Yeah, absolutely. So I think. The best initiative for our company came from a lunch with an informal advisor at Barbera. That advice was to seek the best. Seek the best advice, the best partner, the best vendor. Don't talk yourself out of making the phone call for that right partner. Always assessing who's the best in the marketplace, whether it's a person, company, or institution, and creating a list and saying, I'm starting for number one. And if I have to get to number 75, so be it. But I'm going to call 1 through 75 before until I get a yes of the person that I'm looking for in that specific discipline, person, company, or institution. That advice has been pivotal for us because it did push us to call FIT, which lended to a relationship with MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology for Engineering, which has pushed us to partner form opportunities and open doors with some of the best in the world at what they do. And so I think in business, you think you lo limit your scope when you either look local and less of the best locally, um, but also looking for the best world class, looking for those people to be your partners. That has been an initiative for us where we say, we're going to find the best that we can until the person says yes, and we'll just keep going down the line until we find that best person. And so that has really changed our trajectory. Absolutely. That's a good piece of advice. I haven't heard that one before. What is the most unusual habit or others, what others may consider out of the ordinary that's helped you or your company most? For us, it's kind of silly, but embracing obstacles. So when we have a prototype failure, we kind of like high five and are happy. And the reason that is, is partially because of how our company is positioned in the marketplace and partially because you have to. So the reason because we're positioned in the marketplace is that we are an IP company, an intellectual property company. And so the harder it is to do what we do with what we know, the harder it is for someone else to do what we do that we know. <laughs> and so every time we have a failure, we look at each other and go, that's great. This is good. That means this isn't easily replicatable without the knowledge that we have. On top of that, it allows us to say, what did we learn from this moment? How can we be better and really challenge ourselves to problem solve? A lot of times when obstacles happen, people, that's when they get deterred, stop, or take time to reflect. For us, we take time to reflect and move forward. It actually becomes a boost in the arm instead of the reverse. And I think if more people embrace the obstacle, no matter what, if it's a service product or whatever, if they see the obstacles, that means they're seeing them before anyone else is seeing them in the marketplace, which means they're creating value um, and have an understanding and deeper knowledge of their product or service. You know, I think about, so you get issued an obstacle, right? And so it's arrived at your doorstep today. And so with that obstacle, do you guys have a routine to address it, do you go to a meeting, you go for a walk? What do you do to try to take and go reflect on the obstacle and start trying to problem solve? What do you do? 
either have caffeine or a beverage. <laughs> <laughs> an adult beverage of your choice. I wondered how you were going to answer it depends on the obstacle, truly. If it and, and what industry or area it's in. I mean, if it's an obstacle in business, for example, we've had an obstacle in business this week, and it was okay. Well, we're relying on that person to solve that for that problem. We're going to solve for that problem, and we're going to send them the solution. So we're going to help lead them to the water instead of relying on others. If it's something like a prototype failure or an issue with the scientific modeling, we start thinking about it. We start mind mapping out about why that's happening. So I think it's just depending on the obstacle, but nothing that caffeine or wine can't help. I'm thinking about prototyping. So visually, let's say that the support structure looks like chicken wire, for lack of a better term. And then it mutates to where it looks like spiderweb instead. So for you guys on your patent iteration, what's the process for you to make sure that if you're innovating and solving, you go from design A to design C, that you can protect both? Well, that's the difference between design patent and utility patent. So we have a patent pending for our utility. So utility is the process that helps us create our product. And the design is the actual product itself, where we would file multiple patents depending on the design change. And a lot of our design work comes from biomimicry. So looking at the world and nature and how the world has created strength in different things, like a spider web or like like cells working together, where that's how they're connected and what that looks like and really assessing the biomimicry and using that same thought process in our problem solving. Where did biomimicry come into your vocabulary? Well, I believe we were actually in Silicon Valley meeting with our 3D printing company that we work with, Carbon 3D, and a lot of their chemical engineers think and use the terminology biomimicry and it's becoming very popular in building products and assessing strength. It's something that's been around a long time but for us as baby entrepreneurs and not engineers it came into play talking to chemical engineers Mm -hmm. then really assessing looking at nature and how do we mimic the strength in nature that's already been created and has worked for thousands of years to build strength. I mean spider webs are strong for a reason. So how do we use those elements to mimic strength without building thickness? That was the the biggest piece. You know, it's part of that journey. You think about the texture of what you know as you go down this road of exploration. And you kind of go, yeah, I've got a few more threads in the texture. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely have more threads in the texture. So over the past three years, what belief or protocol have you guys established in your company that has most impacted you or your company's success? To follow up, that is the most important thing, whether it's a business card from a networking event that you were recently at, or an offer from a friend to introduce you to their friend that might be able to influence your business. But the biggest part is don't just ask for the advice, follow up on the advice. Once you've taken that information and done something with it, circle back around to the person who gave you the advice and give them an update on how that information impacted your business. Then ask for more advice or to be introduced to people within their network. That has been so powerful for us, and we have been blessed with the people and the organizations that have been willing to help us because we value their time, their expertise, and their network. Another thing that Megan and I are very adamant about is sending handwritten thank you notes. Don't underestimate the value of a handwritten thank you note. In today's society of electronic communications, that is so powerful. And it's amazing because it's greatly underutilized, but it's profoundly appreciated. 
You know, I just finished a bunch of thank you cards. It is excruciating. Yes. <laughs> My handwriting, you kind of go, that code? <laughs> it's just excruciating, and, you know, I can appreciate it and understand it. You know, I was thinking about what you just said, where somebody offers a piece of advice, you do something with the advisor guidance, but you circle back around. Where did that come from, or how did you learn that? A lot of it has been because we're very adamant about follow-up, and when we have followed up with people that have given us advice, information, recommendations, leads, introductions, they're always surprised that we've come back to thank them. They say so often that they will offer help or advice and never hear what happened with that information or from that individual again. And that's sad because once you prove that you are good at following up and taking advice, they're more willing to help you. People that we have reached out to have become mentors to us, have become business advisors to us. A lot of them have given us what don't to do. Don't make the same mistakes I made. Here's what I did. Avoid it at all costs. I've already created the wheel. Don't do it again. It's just been really powerful to see how endearing we've become to them because we valued their information. We didn't just take it and never show up again or never follow back up. That's the biggest thing for me is follow up. I would tell you that's an incredibly scarce skill. You guys are the first ones that I've actually heard that articulated from. Well, yeah. So, you know, in the podcast, anybody listening, there's what do they call this? Five star tips. That's, five star tips. <laughs> that's a powerful one. Yeah. Advice that you guys would offer to a new CEO that's assuming the role of CEO for the first time? For me, it's to pick up the phone and make the phone call. Don't be insecure about who's on the other end of the phone. Megan pointed out earlier, the best advice I think we've gotten to date was go for the best of the best. Ask for their help. More often than not, they're willing to give their help, and it's been so profoundly impactful for our business. What's your thoughts on Yeah, absolutely. So I think in concert with that is once you're given advice, assess the advice, but don't live and die by the advice. So what we what I found, too, is there's... A lot of people have advice, and it's great advice, but you ultimately have to press forward. As an entrepreneur or CEO, it's your job to move the needle. No one cares more about your success than you. You may have amazing people around you, just like we do, who have great intentions, but some of them conflict. And so at the end of the day, it's your responsibility to decide what's best for you and your company and do it, and not wait for someone else to help you move the needle because they've offered advice or are going to give an introduction and it's not happening. It's your job as the entrepreneur to propel yourself forward, which it seems so fundamental, but I think it is a differentiator that there's phenomenal advice to receive and to be thankful for, but you also have to think if it's the best advice for you and go from there. And making sure that there's a fine line between being polite and waiting for someone to introduce you that they know they have the relationship with and making that happen on your own. So if you're not getting where you need to be or to the right connection, take the reins in your own hands and make that introduction. Whether that's a person you aspire to model your own career after or someone who has created a company and has been successful and you would like their tips. The biggest thing is we've had situations where we've politely waited and realized in hindsight that we should have just gone after picked up the phone, made the call ourselves, we'd be further down the road than we currently are. And we've recovered from those things, but it was a learning experience to not necessarily wait for someone if you're not getting where you need to be. It's tough to be dependent. Mm -hmm. 
This is really quite the fun episode, guys. I'm enjoying it. So what's the most common misconception about you guys and your role as CEO and or owner? I think the most common misconception as CEO or owner or misconception of anyone in my thought is in leadership is that a title means what you're supposed to be doing. So Nancy and I originally had titles and we got rid of titles because we collaborate so well together as business partners, it almost seems silly. Typically titles put you in roles of what you're supposed to do, but we both have really special skill sets that work and intertwine together. And so I think the misconception is, is that your title says this and this is the lane you stay in, where you should really focus on your natural talents and giftings. And maybe it's, you're really good at finance, but you shouldn't be the CFO. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's really not allowing the title to put you in your lane, working together if you have a business partner or you have advisors to collaborate and really lean into your natural giftings and strengths and not rely on anyone to put you in that spot. I mean... We're in a position in our company where we're doing everything. I just and and maybe that's the nature of our company where we're at. But I think we work collaboratively together, and so it really works. So I would just say a title doesn't necessarily equate to your giftings and skills and the role you should be playing within a company. And I feel like in a startup, especially, you wear all the hats. You don't get to just put one hat on and own that hat. You need to pick up wherever there's a need, slack, deficit, etc. You can see why it didn't get done in the mirror of the morning. That's exactly right. Complete <laughs> control of the staff, right? That's exactly right. Looking back over the past few years, what would or should you guys have said no to and why? I think part of that, well, something we did say yes to, but we wasted a little bit of time on those two things. The first is trust your gut on when you should keep your idea private and when you should keep it public. Think when it can go public. A lot of our time we spent vetting and working through an understanding, which was very valuable time. We spent time assessing the opportunity to prototype overseas and notoriously being known for taking ideas. Thankfully, we pulled back and decided not to do that because of the gut reaction. We had the opportunity to do that prototyping, and it just felt like it wasn't meant to happen. And so really doing gut checks on if you are creating a product or service that could easily be taken or used from someone else before you're ready to show it up. And then also trust yourself when you're ready to talk about it. Because there were moments in time where we were like, do we talk to this person? Do we not talk to this person? We had already patented our idea, but it was more a fear that someone was going to figure it out for us. And so I think trust your gut in that. And ultimately, don't be afraid to talk about it when you're ready. But trust yourself to know that. And then I think what we already discussed was don't let advisors dictate your pace. We did, because we didn't know a lot, because we were in 100A apparel making, um, we weren't even in the 101 class, <laughs> um, we leaned heavily into advisors on the front side of our investigation, and some to the point where we allowed it to delay our activity, and now looking back at it, fully take responsibility for not pushing our product further faster. The timing all worked out in the end, but there were moments in time that people either who had experienced something that would create fear in a business to be protected or challenge vendors or challenge advisors was instilled in us for a brief moment in time and it kind of paralyzed us. And this was the point where we say, do we talk about our product? Do we not talk about our product? When are we ready? If we had kept the mentality of we don't talk about it until it's really ready, 100% ready, we still wouldn't be talking about it. We wouldn't be on your podcast right now. <laughs> so I think just really accepting advice, but continue to propel yourself forward and don't let others 
perpetuate fear into you, knowing that if you know in your gut you have something, keep rolling forward. Yeah, the old thing, you know, that can't be done because it was done before. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for you guys, on the day-to-day operation of the company, what's your personal habit or self-talk dialogue that keeps you guys focused and going? For me, it's the reaction we get when we have the conversation with women about never having to wear an underwire again. Once they're done ranting and raving about how much they hate their underwire, without skipping a beat, they want to know where they can buy a bra with male intimates technology in it. And truly for me, that's motivating in itself. Megan and I were at a meeting with our engineer sitting in a restaurant here in Denver, and a woman kept walking by that worked at the restaurant, and she finally said, I've got to ask, what are you guys doing? And we told her what we were doing and showed her, and she's like, stop it. Is this available now? When can I get it? I want this. And that really is all the motivation I need. And it would be similar for me. I mean, it's not just women in the marketplace, but women in the industry who know the industry very well and see what we're doing. And when we see their faces, to the point where maybe initially they didn't want to take the meeting with us, but like we said, when we get the meeting, we know what to do, so that's not a problem. Then we get the meeting and we show them our product to see us win them over with the product and understand where our innovation, where the heart of it lies and what we're trying to do. They're immediately bought in. And when you continue to get affirmation from women, not only as consumers, but women in industry, that this is a thing, that this is something that needs to occur, and that we have found a solution for it, they're ready and anxious to get their own sample. When you're in the conversation, first off, what's the tipping point for that person? What do you think it is? You can literally say, we just want to get rid of the underwire, and they're immediately sold. Mm -hmm. And this replaces underwire, but creates the same level of support. And by the way, if you love lace, you can still have lace. It doesn't mean it has to be beige and sad. It can be lacy and beautiful. It doesn't, it, yeah, and no, no, I mean, no, no, that's the reality. And it's beige and, and sad. And or, they're in. Yeah, yeah, and they're in. It's just, I want to get rid of the underwire. And it's like, yes, we all know we hate it. So that's really it. Is there a quote that you guys find meaningful or that you use that, that keeps you going? There's a quote that I like. Oh, I wasn't going to say that quote. Um, <laughs> optimism is the faith that leads to achievement. Optimism, our naive optimism at first, and now true optimism through validation is what's pushing us and propelling us forward to achieve. I think a lot of people can be naysayers, but when you know in your gut and you're optimistic, it will lead you to the water ultimately. We've just really focused on that. At the beginning, frankly, it was a naive optimism and hopefulness and lack of understanding in the industry. But I think anyone who's tackling a new industry that they're not, they haven't lived in in their life, would say that it's going to take some amount of optimism to get through that. I think for us, as we've really taken an optimistic point of view on creating change. I keep hearing you guys talk about the pain point. You know, find the pain point, find a solution, and, and you have a really nice business going. I had no idea that the pain point was this widespread. Half the population's mad. Yeah, and the pain point is very literal. <laughs> it is a pain point. Yeah. It is a pain point on a woman's body, and you can see it in the, in the mapping of the engineering simulation. And a woman could point and show you where she experiences pain from her underwear, which is pretty phenomenal. You know, and I think about the stress testing, and you can see that kind of stuff. And there was an engineering drawing you go right there. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, and not only there's that pain point, but then there's the pain point when you have your favorite bra that you wear most of the time, you delicately hand wash it, you covet it, and then the underwire pokes out of the channel. It no longer works. Literally, there are women who have cried over having their bra break down to the point where they need a new bra, and that one's no longer available. 
So then they have to go on this process of finding something that fits. And you walk in this store and you're measured, and they'll tell you you're this size. You go into this store, and they don't have that size, but they'll measure you and tell you you're this size. Oh, you have the available size. Yes, yes. this is the available size. Yes. <laughs> oh, you, that's you, yeah. Yes. Um, oh, and how funny, that brought $20 more or $50 more or whatever. But there's the pain point of wearing it and it being physically uncomfortable, and then there's the pain point of the bra finally giving up and being threadbare and, and you need a new bra. I can't really empathize. <laughs> that, that's kind of but, but, but my daughter and my wife would probably just come, yeah, what, what she said. So if a colleague was asking you guys what's your best app, what would they say, and how do you utilize this strength on a day-to-day basis? So Nancy and I talked about this before, because I think sometimes you know what you're good at, and sometimes it's good to get perspectives, so we had a conversation before this podcast, and I said I would answer for both of us, so... Shocking. (laughs) (laughs) Which will only lead into my skill set. I make the phone calls, she makes the presentations. (laughs) But the funny thing is, so Nancy and I worked together in corporate America for a while, and we took the Clifton Strength Finders, which I don't know if it's a Gallup organization, they tell you your strength, there's like 30-something themes. Nancy's most dominant theme is Woo, and Woo basically means that you love the challenge of winning people over, and you're really good at getting to know people very quickly. And that couldn't be more true for Nancy. So Nancy really enjoys getting to know people and understanding who they are and interacting, being social. And that lends to her picking up the phone, getting to know people, finding our advisor team really quickly. And it has dramatically impacted our business because of that skill set. So for us, we wouldn't have the amazing attorneys we do because she met an advisor at a networking event that put us with this firm, which built out a lot of our IP successfully. There's little things like that that snowball into aspects of your business. And when I asked Nancy what I was good at, because I always want to be self-aware, <laughs> and not that my strength finders didn't tell me this, but I like to win. I like to win. And for me, a problem is just a different way, a different challenge that I need to win. So the way I look at it is everyone hates the underwire. How are we going to successfully overcome that challenge? And perseverance. I will persevere and I will win at solving the challenge and I will stop until it happens. And so come hell or high water. So I am very competitive and, and will push until it needs to be done. And so mapping, having those two personality sets in a business really work because there's someone who's really good at connecting with people at a personal level and myself who I really enjoy problem solving and finding the solutions and creating winning team. On that, maybe two years ago, Megan and I were driving along and we were having a conversation on our way to our manufacturer. It was just one of those days. From it came the conversation of one plus one equals one great one. Because sometimes we're great on our own, but sometimes we need the other one and we make a great team. And truly, we've known each other over 10 years. This relationship is truly how we function all the time. We travel well together. We work well together. We respect each other's advice and we respect each other's strengths. I think for some people, it's hard to see us and understand, but we don't, we don't have fights. We don't have altercations. It's a very appreciative relationship of what the other one brings to the table. Trust. Yes. Very strong trust. I mean, you think about, we say that here like it's common. Mm-hmm. It is so incredibly rare to find that type of synergy 
you've seen where you, you know, in times in the past where you'll be with somebody else, you know, in a business environment, any kind of, you know, uh, I don't think so. Rare to find part of the key for you guys. Yeah, it took us about two years to finally worry about having an operating agreement. <laughs> yeah. And mostly because our attorney our demanded us. Yeah, really. Well, you know, you think about that and you go, it could be that everything just goes swimmingly for you guys forever. Right. Yeah. But when do you guys get run over the crosswalk? Yeah. That's you know, I keep talking about run over the crosswalk, what makes you worry about the transportation? <laughs> I'll be looking both ways over yes. here. Yes. But, you know, you think about that, it just it makes common sense to do this kind of thing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we're not saying don't have operating room. We're just we are saying, saying have we're having them. But we are saying we are really blessed and lucky in our relationship that we do complement each other. And the one plus one really is because at some days I'm operating at 25% and she needs to operate at 75 You're not always going to operate 100% every day. The great news is that we have each other to work in this business together. And if you're lucky enough to have our relationship like ours, you're really, really blessed. You think about that and you kind of go, the joys of good friends. Very much so. Absolutely. And then getting to do business together is even better. Conquer the planet. That's... Absolutely. At least the underwire. At least the underwire. (laughs) The steel companies are going to go out of business. Yeah. (laughs) And I use the word term guys all the time. We're comfortable. I think about what you guys are attempting to do and the success you've had to date. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being on the podcast. This is just awesome. So thanks so much for your time and candor. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank That's you very much. We are blessed and we appreciate being here and we appreciate Diane introducing us to you. Oh, yes. A hat tip to Diane Sonar. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thank you.